America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute. M-I-S-E-S dot org is where you can find more content like you'll get from this show. And the focus of Good Money is to roll back the curtain to look at the politicalization of the economy, to uh, have a better understanding of what is going on in terms of the Federal Reserve, the consequences of government spending, and how we can better understand it going forward so that we can help protect our pocketbooks, our investments, and better navigate this sometimes crazy world we are living in. Uh, we had some positive news reports this week. There's a, a bit of a victory parade going on in terms of certain elements of the financial media with U.S. inflation rates, according to CPI measures, uh, dropping down to a nice 3%. still well above the 2% target rate, but this is being promoted as a great victory for the economy, a sign that, oh, maybe inflation might have been transitory after all. Uh, Mr. Paul Krugman, uh, former economist with the, the New York Times. He was on Twitter yesterday doing a victory lap of sorts, saying that basically the underlying uh, transitionary narrative, it might have not been right in terms of time period, but that ultimately this reduction in the inflation rate is a sign that all the naysaying and doomsaying and all that are, are, are clearly incorrect. Well, there, there are a few things to unpack with this news. Um, first and foremost is that, you know, when we, we deal with any sort of policy or in any sort of DC speak when it comes to economic measurements, it is important to, to, to best understand the tones. Um, you know, a 3% inflation rate is, uh, you know, this, this is building off of previous prices, right? So we, 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 are, we have not seen a decrease in inflation to the extent of, of getting closer back to prices from, you know, before the uh, insanity of the COVID era and all of the disruptions there. Um, but there's also an, an interesting dynamic playing out right now where, Inflation in the short term from the consumer price index, um, again, the, the rate of increase has dropped. Um, but today we're looking at the production price inflation numbers, and those are a lot more sensitive to energy costs in particular. Those are, are factored a lot more into the various means of, of production of real goods and services in the economy. And this is where there's another story that is worth keeping tabs of, um, looking at Reuters this morning, and the U.S. dollar stumbles, drops to more than a one-year low, even as inflation eases in June. 
What that basically means is that the dollar relative to foreign currencies is hitting a bit of a low period. And a major aspect in this affects a variety of aspects. One is just relative to, to other national currencies out there. But a larger dynamic is increases in energy prices. Um, you know, I'm sure out there um, uh, might be noticing gas prices ticking up uh, once again. Um, what has been a period of, of sort of steady decline in gas prices where we're seeing a reversal. Um, you know, some parts of the state as high as you know, 20 plus cents a gallon overnight. Um, and so this is, this is an, a, a dynamic where, you know, the narrative that everything is fine and dandy, we are going to return to some sort of, of pre-COVID normal. There, there are a variety of intricacies in play right now. Um, short-term news should not be confused with long-term trends. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the underlying problems within the economy are still there. They're still, um, you know, we, we, various uh, reports from the Fed have outlined the extent to which bailouts for regional banks that were a major issue early this year um, have been underreported in the past. Um, still weakness out there, particularly within commercial real estate markets. Um, the Fed has indicated that they are expecting poor performance from the stock market going forward warning that investors are going to be less likely to pay high valuations for low profit profiles. Um, you know, again, and a lot of the, 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 these, you know, prominent stocks, I'm not talking about necessarily Amazon and, and, and Apple necessarily, um, but there are a lot of, of very prominent stocks in the market that have still not fully baked in the increased cost of servicing their debt in the future. And so this is this is something where the press always likes to spin a very positive, rosy sentiment. A lot of our policy tools at the time uh, currently are communications tools. They want to prop up consumer sentiment uh, as a way of kind of controlling the animal spirit sort of view of things. And yet still the underlying dynamics here are very we, we, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they, they want us to ignore that you know, it's, it's kind of plays into this larger dynamic of economic denialism um, that undermines the, uh, the, the importance of savings rates for consumers, which were, as we talked about last week with Ryan McMakin, um, we're seeing a major debt problem with American consumers, um, even job numbers, um, which are often ha has been a point of pride for the Fed, kind of a, a point two of the underlying healthy economy, where we're, we're seeing massive increases in disability claims within the United States, which takes people out of the workforce, ends up juicing those numbers to a little bit. So there is still this, this propaganda shell game when it comes to understanding some of these various measures out there. And so we, uh, we're going to be joined this morning at the other side of the break with uh, Jonathan Newman, who is a professor with the Mises Institute. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the Fed's record here, break down some of the other aspects that are 
not fully accounted for in terms of inflation measures. One of the most interesting ones is uh, kind of shrinkflation and the kind of substitution for inferior goods for pro- you know, kind of previous existing uh, measures. So, for example, if your uh, your box of cereal has less cereal in it, but you're still buying the box, you know that that is, is treated a little bit differently. Um, you know, you're getting kind of that's that's one way they kind of hide some of these official measures, and and ultimately all of this is you know being you know, kind of seeing through this very uh, regime controlled narrative on the the underlying aspect of the economy. Um, if you look at Mises.org this morning, you'll see a variety of, of interesting articles dealing with issues like this. Um, Make some looks at uh, the, the, the industrial policy of Bidenomics, uh, a, a revisit back to the debt sealer, seat ceiling theater, uh, some of the concerns with the central bank digital currencies and the like. Um, so a, a lot of great content out there, all dedicated to our underlying mission uh, for both the site and this show, which is independent economic education. And one of the very exciting programs we have going on at the Mises Institute, which I will also be discussing with Dr. Newman, is Mises University, which is a week-long program that we have every July, uh, where we have scholars from all around the country that come in with the purpose of educating hundreds of students in the economics discipline, Um, students from all sorts of of different backgrounds, different interests, and ultimately, at the end of the day, there's nothing that um, better prepares, I think, young people for having that, the the critical thinking lenses necessary for looking through a lot of the uh, banality of modern culture and political discourse than a background in economics. So stay tuned to the other side of the break here on Money Talk 1010, and we'll continue with this morning's episode of Good Money with Tho Bishop. Welcome back to Good Money. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, and we have a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you go to Mises.org slash good, you'll find a $5 book bundle with two great short reads to uh, better help you uh, understand proper economic thinking, understand the history of money and inflation, uh, to better understand some of the complexities of some of these economic, this, this economic environment, some of the narratives that are out there. These two books include How to Think About the Economy by Oklahoma State Professor Dr. Per Byland, a great introduction to economic thinking, as well as a classic, What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray Rothbard. Again, these two books are great for anyone interested in a broader understanding of society around us, but also particularly great for high school students, college students that are about to embark on adult life. And all the fun that comes with that, you can get that again at Mises.org slash good. And if you use promo code goodmoney, one word, at checkout, shipping and handling is included. Two books, $5. I think that you will enjoy them if you're listening to shows like this. Someone who understands how to think about the economy is my good friend, Dr. Jonathan Newman of the Mises Institute. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, though. 
Excellent. Well, again, we're, we're seeing, uh, starting off this week with a lot of uh, uh, victory articles out there from Paul Krugman and the like, trump, uh, uh, trumpeting the, uh, the, the victory over inflation. Yes, it's, it's at 3%. It's supposed to be at 2%. But, you know, golly gosh darn, this is so much better than all the doomsayers were, were saying a few, few months ago. And therefore, it is very clear that we are uh, heading to that, that very soft landing that the Fed was predicting. Of course, it's interesting that the, you know, we kind of look at the, the history so far of what the, the Fed has really been doing, um, you know, the, the, some of the consequences of that policy. And this is you – know, Jay Powell admit this, is that the, the consequences of this increased interest rate environment, um, the, there is a lagging effect there. We have not seen the full extent to which uh, various firms and the like um, – trying to, to, to handle uh, the servicing of their own debt, dealing with the, the, the real costs of increased interest rates and the like. And one of the, I saw you had a, a tweet last week that really kind of highlights the extent to which the current positions of the Fed are aspects that nobody could have priced in, um, looking at their own projections for their own policy. Um, just a few years ago, you have a... Uh, one of their, their dot plot charts, one of their, their convenient communication tools. And um, you noted that if you were to actually accurately chart uh, the uh, federal funds target rates, that uh, they, would, you, you, they, they are so off the chart that you have to, uh, have to, have to make up something. That, you know, these, these are, this has been a, a very extreme policy reversal that the Fed has had to overgone, um, thanks to the pressures of the Fed. So can you can we talk a little bit about the kind of the, the short term history of Fed policy tools and the extent to which you know I can have, if 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 you kind of do not follow this closely it's kind of very easy to to just assume they all know what they're doing but the extent to which they have um, created an environment where it's very difficult to kind of predict what comes next and some of the, the consequences that you might think uh, as a result of this that may not be reflected in uh, the, the positive news reports of this week. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, how much stock we all put into Federal Reserve predictions. They, uh, they have this air of sophistication about them. We, we have this view of them as, as taking in tons and tons of data and extrapolating it out into the future, and they're taking into account all sorts of things that we're not taking into account. But if you look at the track record of Federal Reserve predictions, it's, it's pretty horrible. They're, they're quite bad at predicting even uh, things that they are in complete control of. And the example that you referred to is, is, the, is the dot plot showing the Federal Open Market Committee's uh, prediction of what their own targeted federal funds rate will be which is something that they have complete control over. And uh, they were the, the particular graph that I posted was from 2021, and it was showing, you know, this nice, smooth upward because interest rates were, were uh, down near zero at the time. It was showing this, that their predictions from 2022 to 2023 and then for the longer run is making this nice, smooth upward curve. We'll just sort of settle back into what we think a – a long-term equilibrium interest rate will be. But, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, the 
the actual course of the of their own federal funds target rate uh they had to shoot it up uh immensely they had to they had to increase rates immensely and the reason why is because they they had to follow market forces they they had to respond to the market and they saw that inflation was becoming very unpopular and so they had to act much more quickly than they predicted they would have to so it, you're right that the for 2023 the actual figure was literally off the charts because it stopped at 4%. And, of course, uh, at the beginning of 2023, we had uh, interest rates at 4.5%. And, and I think we'll, we'll continue to see them increase from here. But their predictions were down in the 1.5% in the range and one, or 1% range. Uh, the upper end was in the 1% range. So they were just way off in predicting their own policy target and yet we still have this idea that they are they are the ones who can predict the future they are the ones who have all these sophisticated macroeconomic models and 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 know where the economy is going and you know based on their own track record i think it's all a farce and you know, the, the extent to which their their tools continue to expand their own influence over the economy um you know, it's it's not simply setting interest rates and everything that kind of goes off of that. And obviously, it's, it, federal funds are, are not directly controlling certain other aspects, but everything kind of kind of kind of follows that. And so we're still dealing with, um, you know, for example, the secondary consequences of increased interest rates in terms of the, the effect that has on mortgage rates, which are not doing a a, a big job of uh, cooling down the Florida housing market, but is influencing other. Uh, housing markets where, you know, the extent to which the Fed's policy has been directed towards buying up mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet, and some of those are not pricing quite as well, uh, given this increased environment. And um, Dr. Alex Pollack, uh, one of our fellows, he has a a fascinating article on the Fed's uh, Cincinnati problem on the extent to which, while they... uh, uh, like to project an era of confidence in being to roll back some of these policies that have been, you know, their, their responses to COVID and, and even policies going back to the response to the uh, Great Recession and, and all the fun of 2009 and uh, the, the Bernanke years, that their ability to roll back this stuff has been uh, uh, lacking for the most part, that outside of a response to you know, it, it took that very real response to a, a politically intolerable inflation number for them to engage on these these interest rate increases they've had. And even that itself is cre- is as as created a lot of tension. Um, Elizabeth Warren yesterday was criticizing yet again uh, the, the rate hikes of the Fed, um, calling for them to be um, kind of put away to to, to re-embrace. The, these easy money policies, um, but can you expand for our, our listeners on, you know, when 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 we think about the the consequences of this, you know, the uh, of of what the Fed has done in terms of, you know, whether it's buying up assets directly, whether it is the uh, decade plus of easy money, whether it and then you know what that means when you have this very sharp tightening the last couple of years. Well, what, what are some of the, the real world consequences to this that 
our listeners might have seen in their day-to-day life that they might all, not always know to connect back to you know, what a, a Fed Board of Governors and their policies and decisions are doing? It's a great question. It's, uh, it's unfortunate how large the Federal Reserve has become in terms of its size and scope, uh, referring to the size of its balance sheet, but also just its scope and the sorts of the sorts of new unconventional monetary policy that it's doing, it's really put itself at the forefront of markets and, and everybody's paying attention to what the Federal Reserve will do when they're trying to make their uh, stock picks and allocate their uh, retirement portfolio. So it's, it's very interesting that we're not really paying attention to, to firm fundamentals. We're not really paying attention to how, we, how healthy the economy actually is. Everybody's paying attention to the Federal Reserve. So one very practical implication of the Fed's policy over the past few decades is that, is that they've put themselves at, at the center, and, and we're not really paying attention to, to, to the real stuff, to the, the economic fundamentals. So that, that's one issue. In, in particular, the, the policies of, of the past few years um, ha, has really put the Fed in, into a corner. They, they've painted themselves into a corner in which they, it's really hard for them to, to escape. And what I mean is, that, like you said, there are people like Elizabeth Warren who are telling the Fed to, to not raise rates. Uh, however, that's, that's the sort of thing that we need. We need interest rates to come up so that we can liquidate the, the, the poor investments that were made while interest rates were artificially low. So if you have years and years of low interest rates, then that encourages uh, businesses to undertake new long-term projects that can't be completed, that are riskier than they otherwise would be. And it also encourages consumers to, to spend more than they otherwise would because credit is cheap. So when you have all of this overconsumption and all of this malinvestment that, that happens from artificially low interest rates, you need some sort of cleansing period. You need... You need a, a correction, and unfortunately, the correction is painful. Unfortunately, that, that involves interest rates rising, and, and projects have to be liquidated, and we have to find new profitable employment for workers. And so th- those sorts of things are painful, but it's necessary. And so the, the Fed has put themselves in, in this corner in which if they raise rates, it's unpopular, but if they don't raise rates, then they continue to, to uh, push in, uh, price inflation higher. And so it's really unfortunate that they've that they've done this, but it's important to remember that they've done it to themselves. That this is not something that's uh, inherent to the market economy. This is something that was caused by the Fed, and it's caused by monetary policy. And I think that last part is important because you know, one of the issues that we have right now, obviously, we're we're in the you know, relatively early stages, um, but it seems like political season never truly ends uh, in America these days. But you know, we're in this environment right now where the notion of capitalism itself as an obvious staple of what America should be, and, and we can have a larger conversation about all the various ways that the, you know, America has, has engaged in a variety of forms of, of interventions that um, outside of the Fed and outside of the, the monetary aspect that, um, you know, have have undermined the, you know, we we are very far away from the ages of laissez-faire. Let's just put it that way. But some of the secondary consequences to the the financialization of the economy as a result of the Fed's actions, you know, whether it is um, increased corporate consolidation 
and the sort of carbonization effect that we've seen in certain industries. Um, I know there's a big, um, there's a lot of concerns in video game world um, as a, a result of, of that industry kind of consolidating another major merger um, this week with uh, Blizzard and Microsoft and concerns about you know the way that that is going to kind of continue this trend of fewer and fewer game studios offering products to consumers um you know the 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 consequences to what the fed has done is is helping actually fuel a you know let's call it anti-capitalist sentiment amongst you know, not just the left that have had always had kind of their own skepticisms of markets and would prefer um, in their in their view, sort of the security and stability of what a heavy-handed um, government approach can do in terms of employment and the guaranteeing of wages and things like that. And obviously, there's those consequences to those policies, and they don't always get their desired desires. But like you know, we we had, you know that that's kind of a historically understood uh, dynamic there. But there's a there's a big push on the right to question the. Ultimately, the, the the reliance upon markets as the most effective means of allocating resources, and I think this stems from just a, a result of what the Fed has done and distortions that we've gotten in the private economy, and that's that's where I, I think having if if you don't have a, a very strong understanding of the way that economic theory helps understand it, it provides guidance in, in recognizing some of these larger scale issues. It's very easy. It's, it's very understandable why people would, would kind of come to those conclusions, given what the, the Federal Reserve's policies have done. I think you're exactly right. The, uh, the main issue I see is that expansionary monetary policy, when you increase the money supply, it has all of these distortive effects, including the effects on relative prices. Some people's incomes go up before other people's in, in, increase. You have increase in firm size. You start all these projects, like I mentioned before, that can't be finished. And so I think, I think you're exactly right that there is an, there's an ideological component to this in that people see during this boom that's started by uh, loose money, they, they see sort of ill-gotten gains. They see people winning uh, when it doesn't look like they've done anything particularly productive. And they look at their own income and the prices that they have to pay, and they're sort of they're sort of jealous. There's this envy that emerges, and and I can see how that would very easily turn into an anti-capitalistic, anti-market mentality, as people see uh, that that the people who are not so productive, the firms that are just sort of uh, moving paper around, they seem to be doing quite well. But if I look at my own budget. I'm not doing well, and so then you can turn that into sort of a, a distaste for the market. But it's important to remember, like I said before, that fundamentally it, it goes back to Federal Reserve policy. It's, this is not something that's inherent to the market economy. While we would have some inequality in the market, it's not, uh, it's not uh, something that would be bad. It's not something that would be distortive. However, the effects of a Federal Reserve policy is certainly distortive. And ultimately, at the end of the day, in uh, Ludwig von Mises uh, wrote a great deal about the, the degree to which the ideology of the times has a direct impact on the policy and the institutions that uh, are, are created around us. And so you know, having that understanding is, is very important to make sure that we can maintain institutions to allow for a better uh, market in the future. 
And so this is where economic education is so important. So we're going to continue this conversation about inflation and economic ideas on the other side of this break. We have Jonathan Newman as our guest here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money on this good morning here in Tampa, Florida. We have a special deal from the Mises Institute for uh, Money Talk 1010 listeners. And this one's a free one. If you want great economic commentary delivered to your doorstep every other month in a nice, beautiful-looking physical magazine, we have just the one for you. If you go to Mises.org, that's M-I-S-E-S.org, slash magazine, you'll receive a copy of The Austrian and delivered to your doorstep. We have some great articles this week. Uh, one I mentioned actually earlier by Alex Pollock on the Fed's Cincinnati problem. I also have a, a great interview with Brendan Brown, um, who has a guide to good money. Uh, a lot of great content within it. Again, this magazine is completely free. Just give us your address at Mises.org slash magazine and get your copy today. One subscriber to the Austrian magazine is our guest today, which is uh, Jonathan Newman, who is a professor with the Mises Institute. And uh, we've been talking about the inflation numbers. We've been talking about understanding the, the broader kind of secondary consequences of the, the financialized economy the Fed has created, why we might not be out of the woods yet in terms of dealing with the consequences of the past decade. And Jonathan, one article that you have that uh, listeners are going to get a sneak peek of, it's not quite yet on the website yet, it is in our queue. Uh, is a look at one of the really interesting aspects of this inflation rhetorical game, uh, which is the uh, concept of shrinkflation and skimpflation and the way that those dynamics are not always picked up in inflation numbers, but do lead to a... uh, degradation of the quality of life and the power of our dollar at the market. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, what, what is shrinkflation, what is skimpflation, and uh, what should listeners know about it? I think it's something that we're all uh, pretty familiar with, even if we're not familiar with those terms. I think we've all seen, especially over the past couple of years, we've seen how firms have cut back on the size of, or the volume of the product that they offer. You see this especially at the grocery stores since they, they actually post the, the, uh, the net weight or the, the total volume of, of the product on, on the package. And uh, what, what we've noticed is that how much we're getting when we purchase these items at the store is getting smaller and smaller even while the price of the goods stays the same or even increases. And it's a way for firms to sort of sneak in uh, price inflation. It's a way for firms to to sneakily uh, increase their prices uh, all the while they know that increasing prices is unpopular. So we all react very strongly to a price tag, but we don't react as strongly to the, the dollars per ounce or the dollars per gram. And, and so firms are able to decrease how much they're giving to consumers while prices increase. So that's shrinkflation. Skimpflation is very similar. It's, it's in cases where the firm can dilute, where they can uh, not provide as much of, of the actual uh, product that consumers want uh, in, in, the, 
in the total thing, the total item that the consumer is purchasing. That one example that I saw recently uh, that was posted on a website that, that collects a bunch of cases of shrinkflation and skimflation uh, was that uh, some frozen meals, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the brand exactly, some frozen meals that were directed at men, so like it was, you know, for the, for the, the man with a strong appetite, and it had some chicken in it and some, uh, some sort of starch and some vegetable. But o- over the past couple of years, the protein content, the amount of chicken that's in this frozen meal has, has decreased substantially, even though the, the total net weight of the item itself has stayed the same. And I know that's just one example, but the point is that this is happening throughout the economy. This is, this is something that every consumer is dealing with. Everybody who goes to a restaurant, to a grocery store, or purchases anything from anywhere is, is seeing this sort of thing. And what's important to realize is that these sorts of things don't necessarily show up in the price inflation statistics. So, so as you said in your earlier segment, when Paul Krugman is taking this victory lap because inflation is at 3% instead of what it was before and how we're supposed to be celebrating this, even though, by the way, 3% inflation is still very high. It still represents a huge uh, decrease in your wealth and your purchasing power over your lifetime, especially. So they're taking this victory lap because the, the price statistics have come down. But what that doesn't take into account are the qualitative aspects of the consumer experience. It doesn't take into account the, the fewer deals and discounts that we're seeing. It doesn't take into account the shrinkflation and the skimpflation. And it's just it's one more example of how mainstream economists, and, and Keynesians in particular, uh, they, they latch on to data. They latch on to the statistics, and, and that's the end-all, be-all. And they don't really take into account the those qualitative aspects of, of, of the economy. Okay, we've also seen a, a hit in the quality of service provided by businesses after COVID. And I, I certainly do not mean this as a slight on um, the people that are showing up and working within the service industry. I'm not saying this there's a, there's a decline in the quality of a service individual. Um, I could have appreciation for anyone that shows up to work these days. Uh, but in terms of the amount of people that are working within the service industry, when you look at you know Walmart, um, still not not open back up to the 24 hours like they used to, you know that there has still been this this uh, uh, rollback in terms of various services and offerings that businesses have made as, you know, kind of in the aftermath of COVID. And I think, you know, the, the various factors on there, you know, that's, that's, that's the one problem that I think we have in this kind of rhetorical battle is that on one side, if, if, you're, if, you able, or if you're able to simply kind of point to a chart or a stat or something that, you know, that, that one data point to help kind of illustrate your case on why something is good, bad, whatever, it is far more difficult to kind of explain all of the different components in what is really going on. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's not a specific reason for any of this sort of stuff. There's, there's, there's a variety of different factors at play, some of which might not even be, you'd be kind of fundamentally 
um, economic in nature and the way that, that culture changes and things like that. But this is one of the difficulties that that economics, I think, has and that the, the people that can overly simplify a economic issue have a rhetorical advantage over those who want to identify the, the variety of different ways that policies and environments have a direct impact on our day-to-day life. And um, I, I know that there's, there's some interesting, you know, that, that there, there, there can be a discussion about other measurements that uh, are out there to perhaps provide a, a little bit of better context than some of the ones that you're likely to get from the Fed or Paul Krugman and the like. But uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, as, as we wrap up this segment, um, the value of economic education? I know you, yourself, you have, you have a, a, a couple of, of children's books out there hitting, hitting that market of, uh, you know, I, I know there's, there's a lot of, of interest in uh, children's content to help kind of understand these kind of broader things. But can you talk just a little bit uh, before we get, before we get you out of here on the value of a, a economic lens for young people to develop at a very young age to better understand some of these complexities? Well, as we've seen just in, in this segment and the last one, that it's really important to, to be able to disentangle all of the, the different effects and, and, and see through the official pronouncements of the, of the government and the Federal Reserve. And really, this is supremely provided by a good understanding of economics. And so economics education is extremely important. It, it's very important for people to, to see or, or at least be able to, to think about the unintended consequences of government policy, it's 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 good just in general for especially for uh, young students to to exercise their brain and think through problems in a logical way. And uh, one one thing that I've done, like you mentioned, is uh, I've I've written a couple of, of children's books that that present economic issues and economic problems in a way that that children can understand. Uh, one of them is based on the the broken window fallacy, uh, which was popularized by Henry Hazlitt. Uh, who, who, by the way, wrote a, an excellent book. It was actually my first uh, uh, the, the book that I read in economics, Economics in One Lesson. And it, it simply teaches that lesson that we have to think through all of the unintended consequences of different events, policies. And it works through a cute little story that involves a, a, a young boy that breaks a window, and instead of concluding that this is good for the economy, if you think through it in the economic way, you realize that destruction is not so beneficial. Another book that I uh, wrote more recently is it's called Ludwig the Builder, and it's on Austrian business cycle theory. And it makes use of a, of a little analogy that Ludwig von Mises used uh, when he was describing what a business cycle actually is. And he was making the point that it's not, it's not based on overinvestment. It's not based on, oh, we accidentally produced too much. Uh, but instead, it's based on a misallocation or a malinvestment of resources during during a boom. So this this also goes through a, a story where a builder is is uh, uh, building a house and he starts building the house thinking that he has um, many more resources than he actually has. And so he gets into the middle of it and he realizes that he has to 
start from scratch because he can't finish the house with the resources that, that he has. And so this story and the one with the, the boy breaking the window, these are, these are very compelling and easy to understand stories. And I think it's important for children to, to be introduced to these topics and begin to see how to think like an economist so that they are impervious to the propaganda and to the, to the pronouncements of, of the government and, and how great their policy is. And all, all of that are, uh, are lessons that are, are extremely important, not always provided within a traditional high school economics curriculum by any means. Um, and you know, it, it's precisely this, again, you know, going back to how we ended last segment, is that the ideologies of the times have a very real consequence in terms of what shapes the, the future that we live in uh, and politics and the like. And so very appreciative of your work, both as a children's book writer and as a professor, and look forward to seeing you at Mises University at the end of the month. That has been uh, uh, Dr. Pro- uh, Jonathan Newman. Welcome back to Good Money. This is your host, though, Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org is where you can find more content like this. And our front, front page today has a lot of great stuff, uh, including some, um, some state-level action that can be done against uh, various uh, federal regulatory powers that are out there. Um, a look at uh, a history of uh, some of the horrors of the Soviet Union. A nice little uh, historical piece on there. And the, the Road to a Single Fiat Currency by Thorsten Paulette, who has a fascinating book on the global currency plot that is kind of focused on some of the, the geopolitical dynamics out there and the way that money is connected to it. And um, that's kind of an interesting topic in its own right. Um, this is kind of a sneak peek to, to next week's show where there has been sort of growing drumbeats out there about the brick BRICS countries, um, Brazil, Russia, China, and others, um, looking at creating a international challenger to the dollar and possibly looking at some concepts like a gold uh, penning to it. Uh, a uh, there was a report that came out last week about... Uh, the expectation for a project not necessarily happening uh, immediately, but as, as a, a tool that BRICS countries are going to be considering uh, when they meet in South Africa in the uh, next couple months. And this, this kind of goes to the, the international component of this financialized environment that we were talking about in the previous segments, where Again, the, the use of the dollar as the main sort of focal point of foreign policy is starting to have ramifications. And as I mentioned in our first segment, while the official domestic inflation numbers are uh, have, have decreased in terms of inflation growth, um, the dollar in terms of international markets is weakening, um, and that can have very dire consequences, particularly if, if we see gas prices continue to increase. And all of this kind of goes to this, this larger dynamic where 
again, a, a status quo that policymakers have been operating in for you know, a generation now um, is shifting. A lot of the assumptions that policymakers have been able to operate on, particularly in America and the influence that we have, the, the size that our market is, is able to kind of give us of being a leader and a trendsetter with international markets. I'm not saying that's going to go away. That's, we, 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 America as, a, as an economic force um, you know, will still be you know, one of not the most influential player out in, in the larger global pool. Uh, but the environment is shifting. We are watching this happen around us. And as Jonathan illustrated, a lot of the assumptions that the Fed, that the Treasury, we, we know from their own record that their ability to predict the future, to predict the secondary and so on consequences to policy matters are not their, their track record is, let's say, spotty at best. And so when we think about investment strategies, when we think about um, the, the real-world consequences to the environment we're living in, it is important to understand that America is not alone in this. Um, and partly, in some ways, that's a good thing. One of the ways that America has, has done so well um, in recent years is that for all the policies that you know, I don't think are a good idea that someone that a, an economist like Dr. Newman would not think is a good idea, America is not alone in the way that we handle money in the modern world. We're not alone in the way that credit markets all have been strongly guided, let's say. Uh, by central bank policies, and therefore the America, as long as it provides a better entrepreneurial environment than what the EU offers, for example, um, as long as the dollar is the strongest asset relative to all the other major players out there, like the yen, like the e, like the euro, um, you know, like uh, the, the uh, yuan in China. Um, you know, we have a, a advantage and a privilege uh, as Americans, and, and, and there's a lot of benefits that come from being a global reserve currency and the extent that governments can, uh, can spend a lot more than they otherwise would and the like. And so these international tensions, these shifting geopolitical economic conversations, um, you know, that has the potential, potential to create a very different environment that is going to create new challenges, um, new uh, new issues that can affect a variety of aspects of our day-to-day -day life. And so that is what we try to do with Mises.org. This is what we're going to try to do here with Good Money is to keep you informed on some of these broader changing trends. Thank you for listening today. We'll see you next Thursday morning here on Money Talk 1010.